The CEO Roundtable brings together operations professionals at the top of their game to define and explore what it means to be highly effective in a scale-up organization. And what sits at the heart of it is highly curated peer-to-peer roundtables where CEOs talk about things that matter. I absolutely love my roundtable. We've been together for about two years, and without exaggeration, I have made friends for life. To find out more, go to coroundtable.com. That's coroundtable.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of The Operations Room, a podcast for COOs. I am Brandon Mensinga, joined by my lovely co-host, Bethany Ayers. How are things going, Bethany? Yeah, pretty well, thanks. We had our equivalent of Roman Day this morning. I don't know, have you ever watched Michael McIntyre? So there's a Michael McIntyre stand-up moment where it's like 8.03, and his son goes, oh, by the way, today's Roman Day, and I need to show up as a Roman. So we had the equivalent of today is Heritage Day, Culture Day, something like that at school, where he needs to show up dressed as something that represents his culture. Okay, his culture, right, being your culture. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And so my husband's Scottish, I'm American, right? (laughs) We have 10 minutes to figure out what our culture is. And he's like, do I own a kilt? Like, no, no, you don't own a kilt. And we're not going to just magic up a kilt out of anything. So uh, we went American. He ended up going to school with a St. Louis Cardinals baseball cap because my family's originally from St. Louis, an Albuquerque t-shirt and jeans and trainers and a blazer. And I just like, oh, you're you're just going as a tech bro. You're a Silicon Valley (laughs) entrepreneur. So a tech bro from Silicon Valley, uh, I love the the niche orientation of this. Figured, and then he started to just like do a howdy partner. And I was like, no, you're not from Texas. He's like, but I can only do a Texas. cowboy. Yeah, he's a cowboy. Like, no, you're from California. He's like, how do people from California sound? I'm like, just neutral. And then we had to do a whole American accent thing for about 10 minutes, the last 10 minutes. Yeah. My daughter for this exact same event We basically put a hockey jersey on her, gave her a bottle of maple syrup and pushed her out the door. So that was our national heritage in that case, you know? It feels a bit ridiculous because all you're doing is like, all right, what do people know about Canadians? Well, they know a couple of things. They know that we love hockey. They know that we uh, produce a lot of maple syrup. Here are the stereotypes of my country. And there you go. (laughs) Yeah. And you say a boot. And we say a boot. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Every time you say it, it makes me laugh because you just sound so American most of the time. And then you say in a boot and then I'm desperately trying not to point it out. Do I actually say that by the way? Every so often, like it's not as a boot is a boot, but there is like a, there's a twinge. I also feel sorry for like the English kids. What are they going to do? Show up in bowler hats and umbrellas? Uh, Yeah. If your heritage is UK heritage, I mean, how, I was going to say boring. It's not boring, obviously, but how creative can you get with that? Yeah, in your own school. And I was like, well, you know, just wearing school uniform is pretty English for the rest of the world. <laughs> just oh show my up goodness. on the day. Right. This is why Angus Young from ACDC dresses up as a UK kid, because it's very UK specific. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So we've got an interesting topic today, and one that's really not talked about a lot, which is product development in the COO role. And we've got two fabulous guests for this, Martin Fagg, the COO of Tilio, and he's the former CTO. And we've also got Matt Jones, the group CEO of ParentPay. And again, originally started as a software developer. Uh, Before we get to that, I wanted to just walk you through a couple of my thoughts on this. And I recognize that 
Martin and Matt come from a software development background. I don't. I come from a pure play product background. So it's a little bit different skew, I guess. The first question I have when I join a company is, do we have good product leadership? Is that product leader clear on the product vision in terms of where's the product at now? Where do we want that product to be in terms of 12, 18, 24 months from now? What does that look like? Does that person have really a strong sense of what that is, you know, in terms of the visualization of it to the look and feel of what that might actually be to give us some tangibility as to what that end goal is in some ways. And with that, do they also have a clear understanding of the product strategy, which is the problems to be solved thematically, whereby they can communicate that to the rest of the company. And then the third element is really the evangelist side of the product leader. Can they truly evangelize that vision, that strategy to really get the buy-in with stakeholders, both internally but also very much externally to go to the world, i.e. customers, conferences, and so on, and get people tremendously excited by that vision and by that strategy. And then the last piece, and I know that this is something that you talk about a lot as well, does that person know how to hire an effective team? And that obviously constitutes all the trappings of that, which is user researchers, product designers, product managers, et cetera. So being able to flesh out the right skill sets that you need for your particular product is incredibly important. So with that little intro piece, do we have good product leadership? What's your take on that? So my first question is what happens when your product leader or like the person who really has the strategy and the vision is the CEO? And that happens a lot in tech businesses because the CEO is the one who saw the idea in the first place, knows the gap and has spent the most time thinking about it. And so I think it was interesting that you used understanding of the vision, understanding of the strategy, and not necessarily creator of the vision and creator of the strategy. Because I have also seen clashes when you have two visionaries in the CEO and product role. You're right. The founder has been the product person, has been the visionary around what the product you know needs to look like and, and so on. When you hire that first legitimate product leader, that CEO has to be able to release the reins to that individual. They're releasing and empowering that product leader to take on that vision that the CEO had and really make it come alive from that point going forward and take it on to its next journey. It's no different than any other function in the company, which is the CEO has to be in a position to delegate components, whether you know it's a sales uh, founder where they're really good at sales, but they have to hire a VP of sales in this case, or the founder is fantastic at marketing and has to hire a marketing leader. It's the same principle. I don't think I have any examples of where a product CEO has actually moved away from the product successfully because they just have such a depth of understanding of the market that I think it's almost like another partnership that needs to be found. And often the very visionary CEO can't create a roadmap, can't think through the detail and needs somebody to do that but doesn't actually need somebody who can own the vision. It's almost somebody who can translate what's in their head into something that everybody else can do. Yeah, I suppose. But I think that shortchanges what the product leader should be. I mean, I guess maybe I've had a different experience. It's very much that leader has to be empowered to take that vision, to own that vision, and to make it come alive for the company and allow the CEO to evolve themselves in terms of what what the CEO position should be in that case. I think so. And maybe it's also like a time element of like, you know, the time horizon element. So, because the CEO is still going to ultimately own the strategy and be thinking about the moves in the market and maybe thinking a couple of years out and have, I think, we're talking tech businesses here where the product 
is the business and is the strategy, but maybe in the more short term, 12 to 18 months or even six months out, like the product leader needs to be thinking about those areas. But I'm thinking like, you know, acquisitions and mass changes in the market and getting ahead of the competition. I just have never worked with a CEO who isn't obsessed about thinking about those things all the time and not so keen on letting go of it because that's what they do. And that is, I think, a lot of what their job is. At the end of the day, the product needs to go from A to B. And if the 100% full-time person on that idea of going from A to B is the person you've just hired in this case and not the CEO, because the founder may have very clear thoughts as to what that vision needs to look like, but they have 8,000 things to do. Product is one component of that, and it's not 100%, whereas you've just hired somebody where they have 100% of their mind's eye on getting to point B, essentially. This is where you get into problems, right? Because the what you end up putting into your product strategy and the problem areas that you're solving and what the product development team is starting to produce, the CEO, at some point, if they were not aligned with that because they have their own particular thoughts as to what it needs to look like or where it's headed, and it starts going off in a different direction that they're not comfortable with, and they end up undercutting the product leader by, at a later stage, walking into an OKR meeting or a product development meeting saying, hey, what's going on here? Why are you doing this? This is where you have huge problems, I would say, and this is where companies fall down. Yeah, it's always hard. have to keep letting go of things. (laughs) The second one was this question of, do we have good product managers? And I have a very particular focus on this given my background coming in. And the real question is, do the product managers actually understand their jobs? And in my view, there's four components to their jobs. The first one is, do they actually understand the users and or the customers on a qualitative level? So have they actually gone out to speak to customers? Have they actually gone out with user research folks to really understand the users, if it's more of an end user product in this case, or maybe done both, and pulling that qualitative piece together in a very clear, crisp way for themselves? The second part is how the product is actually used. So this is more of the quantitative side of things when they get into the application, what are they doing? And then the third piece is the market dynamics. Do they really understand the dynamics around the product that they're focused on in this case? And then the last piece, most importantly, is the stakeholder management within the company and what the business is trying to achieve. Are they clearly shepherding the stakeholders and ensuring that the business is going to be satisfied with the direction of the product in this case? Is that what they're doing or are they doing something else? I mean, what you're saying makes a lot of sense, sounds reasonable. What I think I see a lot of product managers actually doing is... I don't even know what to call it, like organizing the roadmap and trimming stories and like getting really in the weeds and spending a lot of time with developers on the order of the buttons being developed and not as much time validating with customers, validating with the outside world or internally what's needed. But I guess you need to do both. So if the product manager is doing what I envision, which is what you've just laid out, then who does the What's the, there's a term for it. You'll be paired in a triad with your product designer and your lead engineer in this case. And between the three of them, they'll really be crafting that program. And the question in those three individuals is how are you parsing out the roles and responsibilities related to trimming the backlog or problem reports that are coming through or what have you. And the red flag to me is when you have product managers that are doing exactly what you just said and they're not doing these other pieces, we have a problem basically. And this is where I get concerned, I would say, when I come into businesses. And this is where this kind of rolls up to that product leader 
doing their job, but also very much knowing what good looks like when it comes to product managers and how best to ensure that the triad between those three individuals does what it needs to do to ensure that the product is built in a way that makes the most sense. Point number three that I wanted to talk through with you, again, when I come into an organization, I ask this third question, which is, do we have empowered teams? This is really this Marty Kagan philosophy of product development where you really want to have product development teams that are truly empowered to make a difference. And the empowerment in this case has three basic elements to it. It's not rocket science, but are they teams focused on problem areas? The second bit of it is, do we have all the tools that we need to solve this problem area? And the tooling in this case mostly is people. Do we have the right people in place to make it happen? And then the second question is, do we have the right tooling systems and processes to allow us to make it work as well? And this might be data related or what have you. And then the third piece of it is, do we have the appropriate scope or remit to respond to this this problem area? So well, the, the remit is super small and tight, but the problem area is massive. It doesn't really make a lot of sense. So they have to be given a proper scope to really respond back to problem areas where it's, it's aligned in that case. So with that, Bethany, I'm just curious what you make of that. Makes sense. I'm just trying to summarize it. So it's basically have the autonomy to make decisions or have the power to make decisions, have the resources that you need and the right remit. So enough remit to solve the problem. And that's basically what's necessary. You actually spliced one thing into two, which was great, actually, which I forgot to mention. One is the being given a problem to solve, as opposed to here's a bunch of features you need to build. And then the second splice of it is what you just said, actually, which is autonomy, which is a slightly different concept. And the autonomy in this case is being given every possible thing you can have from the organization to make yourselves autonomous, where you're not tied dependency-wise to other things, essentially. Because once you start tethering that group, to other teams where you're dependent on team B to produce something, or there's a dependency on data, or there's a dependency on whatever, it's so much harder for the product development team to make a difference. So that is a good point. Last question I wanted to ask you was, and this is on a slightly different topic, but I'm curious what you think. Why does a product person in particular make a good CEO, do you think? Possibly because we always talk about like a good product person is the CEO of their business. And what you're talking about is like the deep thinking, the collaboration, working across different areas, being able to go big picture and into the detail. And I think that actually going back to one of your original points of when can you see if you have a good product manager or a bad one is, are they always in the weeds or can they pull themselves up? And that's obviously something that we need to be able to do as a COO. That's what uh, Charlene was talking about in her episode (laughs) is what makes you a good COO and a good product manager, product leader. So I agree with that completely. And I feel like in the CEO capacity for SaaS companies in particular, I feel like this product-inspired CEO, I think we're going to see more of that going forward if I was to make a, a better prognostication for the future. And I think maybe just to wrap that piece of it, I think product people are phenomenal at identifying the highest value opportunity to solve and pulling together a team to solve it. And when you think about what a CEO does, it is very, very similar. Hi, everyone. I am delighted to welcome Matt Jones and Martin Fagg to the podcast today. I thought it might be nice to just give you a bit of background as to how I know both of these two fine gentlemen. Matt and I worked together at New Voice Media 2010 to 2015. And so Martin and I have known each other for about, I don't know, two years, 18 months, two years, and have met each other in real life twice. But, you know, great, best of Zoom friends. 
Which brings me into the first question that we have, which is you both have product and development backgrounds. Did you decide to become COOs or did it just happen? Martin, do you want to get started on that one? So for me, I kind of fell into it as an opportunity. It wasn't something that I had actively been considering as a sort of future plan for my career. I've always enjoyed this sort of engineering and product side of things and building. But as I've been at Tello for about five years and I've grown from the company being six people in a room to where we are now with 95 people and offices in America and Australia, I'd kind of wanted a new op- new challenge, I guess. And it coincided with one of the two founders leaving the business, had had other opportunities and, and moved on. A CEO at the time stepped into the CEO role. So I saw an opportunity. I thought I'd put myself forward for it and try a different challenge for the next few years. For me, it was more more of a survival move, actually. <laughs> I was hired to be CTO for a leading uh, UK software company. Um, and while I was working my notice back in 2016, 2017, at New Voice Media, they restructured and um, the role disappeared. So um, I spent the first few weeks in that position defining a COO role, trying to get some support for it. That was my first COO position. I found the, the job at ParentPay took it primarily because it was still the same kind of remit across product and development and um, and operations. Uh, but it was it was slightly broader in that it had the customer functions in, in terms of support as well, and uh, all of the IT. I helped them hire a CTO as well because that challenge got significantly bigger through various acquisitions. And was to be fair and recognising my own shortcomings as a as not a software architect or a, a die-hard technologist, that it, it made sense to get somebody in that, that would focus on that. Um, and that allowed me to broaden my remit and pick up some other functions. I was often asked to adopt functions and sometimes foster them while there were some leadership changes. So that kind of adaptability and willingness, I think, to take on sometimes the unknown um, is what makes the COO role interesting. That um, reminds me of when we had our new chair at New Voice Media, Guy Dubois, a man who's petrified me and is still in my nightmares, but in a good way, mostly. (laughs) I think I have to say that, like definitely made me raise the bar. When we were first, when he was meeting the exec team and going through what all of our roles were and listed out everything that I did, he was like, ah, your miss shit list. Yeah, nice, yeah. Nice. Thank you. Thank you for that. <laughs> and I feel as though like COO is basically the official shit list job of everything that nobody else wants. And then you go and fix and then get none of the glory for and somebody else takes it after you've shaped it in a way. Uh, Martin, you're laughing there. Similar. And so I was curious. And actually, Brandon, this is a question as much for you, just for anybody who isn't aware, Brandon's background is also a product background. So I'm like the the odd man out in more than one way, odd woman out. What functions were you leading? And what about all of the actual like normal ops stuff, the CFO, the people, the rev ops? Did that end up sitting with you or not? When I was CTO, I was engineering data. IT, sort of business IT, and the operations team was already reporting to me. So we had this sort of client services. It just kind of, when we were small, our software engineers were doing all the customer support. So they kind of 
it just kind of sat with me and then I built out an operations team for the client services and onboarding. So I was already doing fairly operational side of the company. And then when I took on the CRO role, uh, expanded the main sort of official team I gained was the people team, but then just a broader remit across the company. In terms of finance, we already have a strong CFO in our business. Uh, we're a fintech. We're processing uh, hundreds of millions of pounds of car transactions a year. So it was important for us to have a strong finance function led by a CFO who's uh, in that exec team and he's uh, runs legal as well. So it's sort of interesting to me when I look at CROs in different businesses, you see so many different mixes of responsibilities. I guess coming from my background, it made sense to continue to own the engineering and that side of things and all of the ISO compliance and with the partnership with our CEO, he's very sales background, new business focus, marketing and uh, on the product side. So we kind of complement each other quite well in that sort of mix of skills. Yeah, maybe a double click onto that one. So picking up the people function as you know, a former software developer and technology person, it tends to be that technology people are the best when it comes to the the people side of things. Can you kind of walk us through the evolution, I guess, in terms of your misgivings or anxiety heading into leading that function, what ended up happening and how you've kind of come to I was going to say come to terms with running people, but I guess really becoming a, a maybe he loves it exactly become a, a master <laughs> mastery of the people function as part of your portfolio. I've been managing people for about 15, 16 years in my previous uh, role as I started at a company as software engineer and progressed ahead of development. And within the first few years, I was managing other developers. So I've always had that sort of people uh, people management side of things, and I enjoy the kind of one-to-ones and uh, talking to people about what their challenges are and trying to get the best out of them and help them progress and help them grow into managers themselves and leaders. And so I've always had an interest in that side of things. And I've always worked very closely with our uh, people team at Tillo. And we've got Bryony, who's our VP of people at Tillo, and she, she came on to manage that function and was reporting to the previous CRO, but we worked very closely together and we have a very good working relationship. So when I came on as uh, CRO, I hadn't really considered taking on the people function particularly. Obviously, coming to the people team with a different perspective, I have the sort of largest proportion of the company reporting into myself. So I've got the sort of uh, unique perspective through that side of things. And then I work with our executive team and the and our board uh, very closely. So I bring that sort of more commercial and business perspective as well. Yeah, um, I actually asked for the people function. I've been managing teams, people and teams since the late 90s. I've always had um, line management responsibilities since then. I've got better at it over the years. I think one of the things about coming from a product development background is, as I said earlier, you've got various parts of the, the kind of machine, if you like, of building and releasing and operating software. It's very cross-functional. And when you're leading those functions, especially when they're all under your control, there's a really broad breadth of personality types in there, you know, without being you know, archetypally prejudiced against people. There are lots of different innate personalities that do different roles within that life cycle. So I think you get a pretty good sort of coverage of how different people operate. And it becomes a really interesting exercise when you run the people function is you actually get a kind of spyglass into what's going on, not just in their roles, but in their lives. For me, that's key. You know, you have to be able to manage people as people rather than just as bums on seats. There is a, a kind of 
drama that plays out through an HR team, which you don't see in the rest of the business. And it's important that the business understands it because if you don't, then you end up in a position where you're not really attached to your people. So they're not really going to be attached to you. So I was just wondering what you mean by the drama that runs through the people team and having the people team. I think you mean the people team being detached from the rest of the business. It's it's just the drama of, of, of everybody's lives. You know, people that get sick, people that, that drop dead, people that commit crimes, you know, people that are raging because they're not being recognized. This whole kind of soap opera of people's lives is it, it's something which you don't really see directly from the top table. A lot of the time there's some interesting insights in that in that drama which um you know businesses need to be aware of. Sometimes they're circumstantial to do with geopolitical environmental things. Sometimes they're purely to do with your own culture and the way that you run that business. Yeah, that's an interesting point because it's a few things. First like because Matt we work together, I know that you're very into your frameworks and patterns and not reinventing the wheel, but just finding like the right pattern that matches most of the wheel that's going on, which I could see would lend itself very well to data-driven people policies, basically. You know, so it's like the combination of of the data and the people. My experience working with people teams is they don't tend to be the most data literate or thinking that way because a lot of the time they're spent in the drama that you're talking about. And the reason why they've gone into people is for that emotional connection and making a difference individual lives rather than through the system. And this is one just to be open, I struggled with, because I'm also another very data-driven person, is like not just getting them to think about the data, but getting them to own the data, have accurate data, and then inform decisions through it. And I felt like it was a battle is not the right word, like a bridge that kept breaking. How have both of you dealt with that? And were you able to build a bridge that stayed upright? From my perspective, I totally agree. I think that the data, it can be captured. You know, there are metrics that you can use to gauge performance and general well-being and circumstances of people. I think there is a reluctance among some HR people that you can't really instrument human beings. And I I understand that, but you can still access data. You can still provide and and gauge and measure data about how people are performing, how people are feeling. You know, that data can give you immediate snapshots of how people are performing and it can give you insights into potential problems that certain people might have. It's also like the accuracy and the custodian, like who's the custodian of accurate data. This is something that we talk about a lot on this on this podcast because clearly data matters. And it's like, who owns it? So in terms of people data, is it the people team? Is it a business ops team? Because you own both, can you control it and have better and more accurate data? Yeah, I think it, for us, the ownership of data sits with the team that is responsible for that day-to-day. So we have uh, we created a data guild within our company and have representatives from different teams. We don't currently have a people person sitting within that data guild team, but we have marketing and finance and engineering and product in there. But we still, as part of that process, the data guild have created this data governance sort of framework where we defined all of our data sources and owners within the business for each of those. So the PP of people owns any data related to that function. And we have these kind of typical metrics where we're tracking employee happiness ratings and we've kind of shifted our employee surveys towards more quantitative 
metrics so that we can track those over time a little bit easier. And I think in terms of introducing the people team into that more data-driven rigor, it's been about trying to introduce it slowly and not try and just lump a whole load of uh, KPIs on in one go. What are the couple of metrics you'd recommend? So for us, we have one uh, that sort of employee happiness, which we're recording on a quarterly basis. We don't want to be asking the team to fill in questionnaires too often. And then another key one is the sort of retention rates, which we were doing at a company level, and we're just starting to move that down to an individual team level. Martin, maybe a broader question for you, which is, when you think about good culture within the company, do you think there's any actual difference between good culture for the product development side of the company versus the rest of the company? Do you think it's the same thing? Or do you think there's anything special on the product development side that's noteworthy in terms of a delta or gap? From a product point of view and development point of view, the teams there are very used to working collaboratively and uh, problem solving and trying to make things better. And I think if you look at some other teams, they can be more used to just getting things done and not necessarily trying to change or improve processes over time. Having that sort of culture within the, the product and engineering teams of collaboration, of problem solving, and trying to demonstrate that outside of the team to the rest of the company has been useful. So as a sort of a related example, our engineers will go to a conference and they come back and they present that to the rest of their team and what they've learned. And we've started showing that within our all hands meeting with the whole company so that they can see that kind of continuous learning and improvement process that they're working towards and how they uh, then use that to change the way they're working. And we're trying to encourage that within other areas of the business as well. So, you know, it might be there's a finance conference or a marketing conference on SEO. We had recently one of our team in the marketing team went there and they could bring back those learnings and just trying to encourage that same behavior outside of the engineering team and, and really embed that into other areas as well. How do you do that? Because I've tried. I've tried to embed retros and learning outside of product because I see it in product dev and I'm like, oh, look at this. Look at this like rhythm of the week and this lovely schedule. And every Friday, everybody does a retro and like, okay, sales team, let's do this. And like one and a half weeks later, none of it, it's all died. I think it's finding a champion in that team when you're kind of driving any initiative in that team where you're trying to change behavior, trying to get somebody on side early on who can really be that champion on on the ground because a CRO you can't be in all of their meetings all the time you might go to the first few weeks and try and encourage it and demonstrate it but you need somebody who's then going to own it and whether that's the the head of that team or somebody just within that team who's being that champion I think working closely with them to really push it on an ongoing basis is necessary and checking in on it on a regular basis as well and maybe just being open to their feedback as to whether it is genuinely useful are they finding value from it or not yeah, and I've had similar problems as Beth in trying to broaden it. At New Voice Media, the, the team that I worked with there, we went through some some pretty torrid stability issues and some enforced kind of stability drives, which were horribly unpopular. Um, but the team, the, the leadership team that, that I worked with there began to get much more sort of automatic around retrospectives using a very simple five-wise process. Uh, and that became habitual where it became part of the fabric of that team and every time somebody stubbed their toe there'd be a five whys and a whole stream of actions coming out of it which needed quite keen prioritization but it was it was good at driving improvement and it did a really good job of making the teams empowered to solve these problems in a way that they wanted to rather than being told by the brass to do it 
and that that was much more effective at getting things moving and getting things stable. And, and I've used that subsequently, um, and it, it is a kind of serious tool in my toolbox now for every function. So I've I have tried to get that working in other places, but I think there's a bit of a kind of tribe mismatch when it comes to developers versus the rest of the business. And um, if there's data and they can get value from that data, then they're much more inclined to use it. I think it's, it's, it's a bit more challenging for other functions to sit around the table and say, well, what went wrong? How did we fuck that up? And how, did, how do we fix it so we don't fuck it up again in the future? Is a cultural aspect, which is, is quite difficult to, to promulgate around a whole business, especially when you've got different personality types who are, may not be hitting their number in sales and they're feeling pretty bad about it and their imposter's looming large and they're beating themselves up on a regular basis. The last thing they want to do is sit through a, a meeting and, and, and rake over the coals of, of their performance. You know, it's not ideal. So it has to be done within the context of psychological safety. Unfortunately, that's just not ubiquitous across all businesses. You know, it's the kind of thing I'd like to try and generate from the top down. That component seems to be the the barrier to allowing these things to happen where people don't feel the blame. And actually, if you boil things down to what went wrong, it's usually a failing of process rather than than a willful failing of people. I think it's also like, it's interesting how little from product has jumped the gap into commercial. And it's like, there's just kind of two languages, two sets of information that you learn. So as a CRO or a you know CMO or somebody coming up on the commercial side, like the SaaS metrics, SASTER, we all speak the same sales language. It's a process. These are the KPIs that you're looking at. And then on the product and development side, there's the same set of resources. I don't know what they're called because I'm not on that side, but like agile and how to do it and retros. And I guess it's like all of the rituals around agile. And so all of the tech leaders read all of that stuff. And for whatever reason, people not like switching over and reading and cross-pollinating, even though you're in the same business and you kind of hear stuff on the other side. And then I think as a leader, you're not very comfortable to really implement it because you only know the surface level of hearing what somebody else in your team has talked about, like me going, I think it's a ritual, but maybe it's not. And then without like deeply inhabiting it, you just don't use it. And I bet there's stuff within like the SaaS sales and marketing world that would be super helpful in dev, but I bet you guys probably like without a lot of effort don't know a lot about it either. It is hard to get different functions working together collaboratively to learn from each other. I think they just see themselves as so different and that they are being measured in such different ways. You know, your your CRO or your, your commercial team are being measured very firmly on the sort of financial results on new deals in the pipeline and can have such a short-term focus on this month and getting things done now that they're very focused on delivering in the short term and less so on the kind of longer range, whereas a, a product person might be thinking more 12 months ahead, what does my roadmap look like? I know I can only get so much done this month. I need to plan out for the long term. So maybe there's that sort of disconnect in that sort of long range versus short range kind of functions as well. There's also a kind of misunderstanding around certainly software engineering in terms of what it actually is. It's not a mechanical engineering thing. It's not a we're going to build a tool that's got these exact dimensions and we'll be able to, to validate it perfectly when it comes out of the factory. 
software engineering is, is intrinsically a creative undertaking and people don't tend to realize that. And for me, in trying to get development organizations to be as productive as possible, it's about en- enabling that context for them where they can be creative and sit down and think about the things that they need to be doing. And it's much more akin to an artist or a designer than it is to an engineer. But because they're software engineers, they kind of get mislabeled, I think, in the consciousness of senior management. And, you know, that whole problem is, is evidenced in how developer productivity is tracked. And, you know, it's, it's, it's the holy grail of data, which is how do we know our engineers are, are doing what we need them to my feeling is is that the way Agile works, in my opinion, is they do something, they step back and they look at it. They do something else, they step back and they look at it. And you can imagine any famous painter doing exactly the same thing. They go right into the detail and then they step back and say, how does that look? That's why Agile tends to be more aligned with development personalities and it tends to get better outputs. And I think, you know, what you're looking at there is you, you produce something, it gets released, and then you look at what the results are. And I think that's how we need to look at software engineering, look at the outputs and the outcomes that you're getting rather than the in-process productivity. Right. Yeah. And I I think there's two things that have popped in my head. One is uh, on the collaboration front across product development and the rest of the company, in particular sales and marketing. I think what's been very useful to me in the past is cross-functional teams that come together as an OKR team to respond back to company challenges. Because when you get that OKR team put together and you have a business person or you have a salesperson, rather, you have a marketing person, you have some product developers, you got a product manager and so on. They have to figure out together as a unit, how are they going to operate cross-functionally? What kind of meetings are they going to have? How are they going to run? What kind of retros are they going to do? What's the cadence going to look like a little bit? And when you have that mashup and you have those types of discussions, this is where the cross-pollination really starts to happen. And I think the learnings that came out of that OKR cross-functional format really inspired me as the CEO to really try to leverage that across the entire company going forward at that point. And I think the second point is to what you just said, Matt, and this kind of dovetails into the next question here, which is, is there any, any legitimate product development metrics or KPIs that should be in that company level dashboard to your point? At my last company, the CTO that worked there, he felt that having Dora metrics on the release velocity was the single KPI or metric that he felt at the company level would be useful. And I guess my question back to you, Matt, and to Martin is, what do you think? Is there a legitimacy for company KPIs to include product development? Yeah, it's definitely a tricky area, and it's one that we've uh, iterated on over the last few years. It can be very hard to measure developer productivity, and I think your CTOs, our former CTOs approach of uh, door metrics or uh, release cycles is is a key one. The Deployment frequency is a great indicator of the maturity of the team and the platform. So if you're able to release multiple times a day or once a day, that's a really good sign. If you are taking every other week or every other month, that's uh, you know not a good sign that your platform is stable and able to be iterated on quickly. And another one I like is the length of time it takes for a ticket or a, a job to be raised to when it hits production. And if you've got a nice short cycle time, uh, it's a good indicator of the kind of maturity of the team and that they can get things out the door fairly quickly. Uh, what about you, Matt? I talk about the four foundations of SaaS, uh, and it's kind of not just SaaS orientated, but I, it's where I've come from. So for me, security is, is is the first directive in every business that I've worked in. I've always held that as the prime. You mustn't not invest or underestimate how important security is, because if if you've got a business and it's not secure, someone can take it away from you like that. So the kind of security maturity level is key. Something that we've reported on 
routinely, uh, or I've reported on routinely through the various functions that I've had. Then you come down to stability, which is your availability metrics, your five or your three nines, your five nines, your two nines, or your no nines if you're in serious trouble. That's important. And I think it's a kind of overall view of health. And then how quickly you can scale. Um, you know, can you actually provide a platform and a, and a context that is adequate for the, the kind of sales pipeline that you've got? So can you actually scale it? And then the last one is speed. And that all comes down to developer optimization and, and the kind of maturity level that Martin was talking about. So how quickly can you get product to market? But it's broader than that as well. I mean, speed really is a function of, of trust, proper delegation, well-working delegation of authority. If you've got everything that needs to go back up through the top team before you can actually make any decisions, then you're just going to literally grind slowly uh, with sparks and trying to get things done. I've always been an advocate and I've always tried to build Daniel Pink's kind of three pillars of autonomy, mastery and purpose. So the, the more autonomy you give to people where they come and tell you what they're going to do or they come to you with decisions ready to be made is how I've got my teams to work. A, they put the work in. B, they then own the work because it's their work and see if it gets approved, they get the, the satisfaction of having done it. That helps everything move quicker. Um, I think Stephen Covey's book, The Speed of Trust, it's well worth listening to. It's a great manual for how to clag up a business by removing trust. So trust, this is something that we talked about in a, a recent episode on the relationship between the COO and the CEO and being trusted by your CEO and what do you do often founder CEOs where it's their baby and letting go and trusting anybody else with their baby is really difficult. Have you had that challenge? And if you have, how have you dealt with it? I think transparency is important, keeping people informed, keeping the, the CEO up to date so uh, they know what's happening and don't feel like they've lost all control. I work with a founder CEO and it's his baby, this company that we've grown, and it's uh, important for him to know that things are happening, things are being delivered, uh, that he's seeing the results. So earning that trust through delivering uh, is important. Uh, from my side, I've not worked with many founding CEOs. Um, I've usually entered businesses um, as they've stepped back with a, with a new team. For me, I think trust between the CEO and the, the CRO is pretty important. Personally, I've, I've always vetted the CEOs that I've decided to go and work for. Um, I've either, either known them previously or I've spent time getting to know them before I take the job. But that doesn't necessarily protect you because CEOs are dispensable <laughs> or they, they opt out uh, or disappear for, for, you know, for, for no apparent reason on occasion. Beth, I think you can probably remember that. You have to pick up the pieces. So you have to do what's right. You have to do the right thing next. So what's the most important, most correct thing to be doing at any given point? And even if that's off the plan, you have to be able to go and have a conversation with the CEO and say, look, we're, we're doing this differently. We've changed the order. We're going to scrap this and do this instead because it makes sense to do it. So you have to have a, a relationship that is mature enough and open enough that you can have those conversations because, you know, plans are plans and um, they're not fact. And ultimately holding everyone to a plan that doesn't make any sense is futile and the CEO's role is to have those gnarly conversations, I think, um, which is when things are when wheels are coming off trains and shit's hitting the fan. It's about explaining what's going on and how we're going to navigate that challenge. And quite often it is just a case of dealing with it and going through it. 
Um, and I think that kind of level of resilience and grit is another CEO, COO um, attribute, which is, you know, not necessarily present in every other C-suite position. Love that. So that's a wonderful way to finish up the podcast. So thank you, Martin and Matt, for joining us. And if you like what you hear on the operations room, please uh, subscribe or leave us a comment and we'll see you next week. 